Yes, Founders Talk is back. We took a few weeks off. Hey, summertime, vacation, fun stuff, family, all that good stuff, but we are back. My name is Adam Stachowiak. I'm the host of this awesome show. On this show, I share one-on-one conversations I have with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, their lessons learned, and what it takes to build and to run their business. If you're a new listener, head to founderstalk.fm to subscribe. If you're a long-time listener, hey, thanks for coming back, and thank you for listening. I appreciate you. If you haven't yet, check out Changelog Plus Plus. That's our membership. It's for our diehard listeners who want to directly support us. They want to drop the ads, and they want to get a little closer to the metal with bonus content and more. On today's show, I'm joined by Robert Ross, the founder and CEO of Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the incident management platform for teams at scale. It is the glue layer between your tech stack and your teams to mitigate and resolve incidents. And Robert shares his journey to become a software engineer, his time at DigitalOcean, this idea of incident management as a platform, and how he shifted his focus from creating courses on incident management to recognizing the value of the software he was creating for this course to what is now known as Fire Hydrant. We also talked through his first experience in raising capital, what happens when the bar is raised on the reliability of the world's software, and why their mantra at Fire Hydrant is hire great people who build, sell, and market a great product, and you'll have a great company. A tremendous thanks to our friends and partners at Fastly. They have our back, our CDM back, that is. Everything we ship, all our pods, all our assets, our entire site is backed by Fastly, and we love them. Check them out at Fastly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at WorkOS. When it comes to adding enterprise-ready features or selling to enterprise customers, product teams, engineering departments, developers, they're all faced with a choice to ignore and focus on viable features or get distracted and learn how to integrate with complex legacy systems. And I'm here with Michael Greenwich, the founder and CEO of WorkOS, who knows there's a better way. Michael, what do teams at Vercel or PlanetScale know about the world of enterprise features that no one else knows? The world of enterprise features is full of acronyms. Typically, they're like these three or four letter acronyms like SAML, or SKIM, or SEAM. It's like Secure Event Information Event Management. There are these long, kind of like really obscure acronyms that most developers aren't familiar with, they've never really heard of. And this is what IT admins require you to build integrations around. They say, hey, we need SAML, or we have to have a SKIM integration, et cetera. And for companies like, you know, PlanetScale or Vercel that are building on really modern stacks, building with React and like, you know, cutting edge JavaScript technology and like web applications, they're really having to go integrate with these old legacy platforms and systems like SAMLs built around like XML several generations before. And so I think when those companies looked at what to do in this scenario, they have deals that are getting blocked because they don't have something like SAML single sign on. And their engineering team is like, do we really want to spend all the time to go read the spec and learn how this works? and dive into all the different ways this can break. And in the case of SAML, there's a bunch of instances of security vulnerabilities that have happened over the years. Do they really want to spend time on that? Or, or do they want to spend time building you know, the unique features that power for sell, you know, like focusing on Next.js and focusing on those applications. And for these companies, they they don't. They don't want to spend the time thinking about SAML. They want to be able to hand it off to someone who can really go deep in that and obsess over it. And so we're sort of like, you know, the, the, the partners to all these companies that goes really, really deep around, you know, these acronyms or obscure technologies, making sure they don't just work really well, but they work everywhere with every single system. And we've tested it end to end. And it even has this kind of compounding effect. The more people using WorkOS, kind of the more stable and more robust it becomes. 
And what it really does is lets companies like Vercel or PlanetScale or Hopin or Webflow focus on those product features and for their best engineers to spend time still delighting their customers and not necessarily doing these uh, enterprise IT integrations. That's awesome. Thank you, Michael. So even if your team isn't focused on enterprise, you can still leverage WorkOS so you're not turning enterprise away. Learn more. Get started at WorkOS.com. They have a simple pay-as-you-grow pricing plan that scales with your usage and needs. No credit card is required. Again, WorkOS.com. Robert Ross, thanks for joining me. We've been chatting behind the scenes for a while now. You're one of our sponsors, and I love catching up with a sponsor on the show, too, because, you know, for us, just to be super clear with our listening audience in case it hasn't been that clear, like we choose our sponsors just as well as they choose us. And I think Fire Hydrant is such a cool company, and the conversations I've had with you behind the scenes just about your journey has been very interesting to me. So I've been looking forward to finally getting you here on Founders Talk and just sharing this journey for you. So... Welcome to Founders Talk. Thanks so much for uh, having me. Excited to be here. And it has been a journey, right? Like you've been going for a while in terms of like your career. You started young. I did. I started semi-young. I think I touched the computer for the first time in my late teens. Now we may date each other. I'm 43. I don't know how old you are. You don't have to share your age if you don't want to, but I'm guessing that I'm older than you. So, you know. I'm 31. So okay. let's just put that out. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> I mean, I didn't really use a computer until I was in my 20s, like really, really use a computer. Mm -hmm. And it was just so interesting. Like today, kids grow up, like a whole generation grows up, literally grows up with technology. And I just think that's so, just so interesting, honestly. People get started younger, some get started older. I didn't start building websites until I was in my mid-20s. You were in your mid-teens, you know what I mean? So like, there's just an interesting (laughs) thing when you look at people's lives and say, when did you begin? But it's also, when were you born? That kind of determines when you begin. I guess at least for this next 30 years. Yeah. Well, I didn't have a saying when I was born. That's true. But luckily, <laughs> we had a computer when I was pretty young uh, that was capable of you know, playing some simple video games. And I had a pretty you know, simple editor and Notepad++, Windows person when I first got started. I'm on Mac now. But mm-hmm. when I was 12 years old, we had a little compact Presario. I think we had the one that said, like, we'll never age. I don't know if you ever saw those compacts they sold. They had a sticker on them, like, is that right? Future proof or something silly like that, which is so funny to think about. That didn't age well. <laughs> it did not age well. But yeah, we had a computer that was capable of making some simple websites. And one day I was just, I was pretty curious. My mom was off at work and we had just moved to Oregon, actually. I was living in Lincoln City, Oregon. Um, originally from San Diego. So I didn't have any friends yet. I was home alone. School hadn't started and my mom was off at work. So I just one day I, I had to call her to ask her if I could use the dial up because that meant she couldn't call me. And she said yes. And I just searched one day how to make a website. And um, that was kind of the beginning. Uh, and I started making all these silly little websites for myself. And the, the first websites I were making which is funny to me to be thinking about it now, is was tutorial websites. So I was 12, 13 years old making these tutorial websites on how to make websites. And I always think that's funny. Like maybe there was somebody out there that was like, you know, in a, at a bank or something like that. Like, oh, how do I do this weird PHP thing? And they were reading mm-hmm. like this 12-year-old's website on how to make those things that they wanted to make. But 
yeah, that's kind of how I got started in the earliest days. Um, just it got gave me the bug. Just wanted to keep making things, and I just kept asking questions. And yeah, yeah, it was very annoying, I'm sure, on all the forums back there. And then 2004, 2003. Oh well, right. Oh well, no one remembers. You know, the times moved on. That's the funny thing about. I guess embarrassing moments. We think they're really embarrassing or, you know, you may be annoying to somebody, but like they don't even care anymore. Right. Just time moves on. Not at all. What year were you 12 years old then? Was that around 2003, 2005? 2003. Yeah. And then I, yeah, that was, that was very simple. HTML, CSS and, you know, JavaScript had barely like really started to take the web over at that point. So yeah. uh, Yeah. Pretty early in the web development ages. Cool. That's roughly my timing, too. So my timing was around 2004, 2005. Hmm. And I just had a gap in my life, essentially, between my ability to have a full-time job. I was trying to immigrate to Canada. And just things were just really weird where I couldn't work for nine months because of immigration issues. I couldn't go back to the United States. And I had to stay in Canada. But I was unemployed because I was unemployable. Mm. And uh, I just had this curiosity bug. It was around 2004, 2005. Similar, just websites, WordPress. Thank God for open source and WordPress, right? Like for <laughs> me at least, because I mean, that was when I draw my straight line from then to now, WordPress is in that earliest day. Yeah. And I mean, when I was getting started, there was this um, forum software. It was, it was called PHP BB. Yeah. And it was open source. And I was able to look at how they were writing PHP PB. And that was actually a really good resource for me because I would just crack open whatever PHP files that were in that repository or whatever it was at that point and just read and learn and view source back then. I mean, we didn't have the tools that were in 2004, 2005. Like you didn't have inspect element really you had firebug and that was like kind of a way to look at the dom but you really you had to like view source and like find the line of html you're like oh how'd they do that html thing on this website i like and that's how i tinkered all the time was just constantly open view source Mm. and then i got really nefarious with it and i was 13 i wanted to watch this movie that was a rated r movie and what i did is i opened up the imdb page and to prove to my mom that it was PG-13, I copied the view source, modified the rating on the page from R to PG-13, and then saved that file locally, opened it up, and said, Mom, it's PG-13. She said, okay, fine, you can watch it. So I, I became a little <laughs> dastardly wow. with it in the early days. Yeah, man. Well, hey, that's, uh, I saw Cassa Williams uh, on Twitter recently. She had a pretty cool meme video she shared was... The easiest way to say it was like, you can make your website perform better just by inspecting element and making all the tests pass, you know, essentially making all the performance tests pass. Like it's not 58%. It's do this, do this, do this. And bang, it's a hundred percent. You have the best performing website ever. It was really funny. Totally. And at the end, she's like, don't do this. This isn't real advice. But I thought that was yeah. like just <laughs> the same kind of thing as like, you know, yeah, view source, change things and you can make the website be whatever really it is and whatever you want it to be. Totally. I love the curiosity, though, the pursuit of your curiosity. So where did you go from there then? So you're, you know, you're 12, you're proven to your mom, the PG-13 movie is not PG-13. It's it's, it's not an R movie, it's PG-13. You know, you're doing some tinkering stuff. How did it go from, okay, young, and young people are, are always curious, right? You can't help but be curious because you're so new in life. 
But how did it go from curiosity to like, okay, I can actually go this route. There's a, a market opening up for the world. And as I pursue a career, when I get older, this is the direction I can go. How did it get serious for you? Yeah. So when I was 13, I started making, you know, pretty, I'll say more advanced websites. Like I was making applications with logins and I was making things with bulletin boards. And this was all, I was a big PHP person back then. PHP like three, I think was the language of the era. PHP four was just getting out there. And and I was making these backend heavy applications. And what happened is that a lot of small businesses started wanting websites around that time period. And when I say small business, I mean like a landscaping company. There was living in San Diego, uh, moving back from Oregon to San Diego at this point, actually. There was fishing boat companies that wanted little websites for themselves. So what I, my mom basically became a salesperson a little bit for me <laughs> on the side. That's awesome. And when whenever she was like with her friends who had small businesses at the bar or whatever she was doing back then, or kids, we never really know, right? And she was saying, well, my son is making these websites if your business needs a website. And I was charging $599 because I read somewhere, and I, I don't know how true this was, but I remember at the time that I didn't need to tell the IRS if it was like less than 600. And I don't remember the you know, where I learned that or if that was even true, but I was charging 599 very specific. And really what I was doing is I was just copying and pasting this content management system I had made for myself in PHP and FTPing it to another server, changing the domain and reskinning it for these businesses. And that's how I was making my money at the time. So I made like, I don't know, half a dozen or so small business websites around San Diego. And the brilliance of this, though, that I didn't realize I was doing at the time. For me, it was like, I want to buy a new Xbox game. I just I go seek out a new business. One must have goals, right? Yeah. And I wanted the latest Halo or whatever was happening at the time. To Halo 2, I think. And what I didn't realize I was doing is I was actually making a portfolio. I had a half a dozen websites that were live on domains with like real people using them. And that was good because not only did I realized this is a monetizable skill it gave me experience and i was still running my tutorial website on the side and i was talking about all the things i was doing i was writing down these articles like how to do logging in in php and how to read cookies in php and side note there is a post on a forum that i used to ask questions on from 2004 that i asked how do i keep a user logged in that was the title mm. and then 10 years later, I recovered my account on that website. And 10 years later, I reply to myself with the answer. <laughs> so you can see 2004 and then wow. 2014, the same person replying back. And Just for posterity's sake, right? Yeah, yeah. I just want to make sure I had the right answer. So by the time I had actually graduated high school, I wasn't going to college. I wasn't applying. My mom had passed away when I was 16. And my dad wasn't in the picture really my entire life. So I was basically like, oh, well, I need a job. So I started looking for a job right after high school. And I really just was looking for money. I applied to everywhere, Barnes and Noble, McDonald's, the movie theater, like just was tossing up my resume to this boardwalk in San Diego, just walked down and handed my resume into all these businesses. And the company that, of course, called me back, none of those called me back, The was the one that I applied for online for this 
this little agency in San Diego is still going called Comentum. And they brought me in for an interview. My first ever interview for any job ever. I wore a suit that was way too big. And I brought in, I've done this twice in my career. I brought in printed out code, like in like the the plastic sleeves. I brought in like this printed out PHP, like templating system framework that I had written. And like back then there was Smarty PHP was the templating language and I had my mind. Uh, and they're talking to me and they're asking me, well, explain this, show me this website. And then later that night they offered me a job and I was offered, you know, at that time, 15 bucks an hour, 18 years old. That was great. It was plenty to, to live on. So I, uh, I took the job and that's, that's where the career started. So I went from making nonsense websites to a full-time web developer. Wow. That's super cool that you printed out your code, man. I mean, I've done that twice. It's actually genius. Honestly. <laughs> I mean, I th- well, iPads didn't exist. So right. that's my, that's my excuse. <laughs> and well, at the same time, like you have to, I'm sure GitHub probably didn't exist then either. I don't know what, I think it was really early. Okay. So really early. Yeah. And at this point I, you know, I hadn't worked in a job that needed source control. I had like some experience with SVN, very, very little with Git. And so that's that was my solution. <laughs> well, the point I was trying to make is like, how else are you going to show your code? Like, I guess you can open up your computer potentially. Totally. You know, and maybe, I guess you'd probably have it locally, but print it. It's like, hey, here's, mm-hmm. you know, you could read it right here. We can look at it together. It's, you can share the view, you know, yeah. really easily because it's literally a piece of paper. Right, right. It's actually quite ingenious, honestly, if you ask me. I mean, Sure. If you had an iPad, it might be better. But I mean, maybe even an iPad, you can't interact with it that much, maybe, you know, I guess paper, you can't interact at all. Yeah. And, and I think that now we do interviews with tools like uh, VS Code, like remote workspaces and work on do interviews that way. But mm-hmm. at that time, it's like, how do I show that I know what I'm talking about? Because I'll just print this out. And it worked out for me. So glad I did that. How did you get to the point then where you were an engineer where incidents became an issue and you were able to overcome these challenges because fire hydrant is about incidents. It's about incident management. You know, how did you get from the age of 16 making 15 an hour, probably still making similar, but better, less nonsense websites, more legitimate websites. Maybe I don't know how to describe it (laughs) to, to a point where you're, you know, in quotes, an engineer. And you literally were an engineer. I don't want to in quotes engineer you, but I mean, you know, you go from that 15 an hour standpoint uh, behind the scenes, you mentioned no school. So like, you know, just trying to figure out how you get to an engineering standpoint. That's a good question. I don't, I don't think I even have a definition, like what's the difference between a developer and an engineer in some countries you have to have to have a degree to even say you're an engineer. But for me, I think it's when the problems became more complex and we weren't just doing like, Drupal installations and things like that. And to no shame to, to that is a perfectly legitimate. It's a huge, you know, market. There's a lot of people that rely on those types of tools. But when you have to incept something from scratch with no prior example, that's when it software becomes challenging because you can't stack overflow questions anymore. You can't search for things because the question hasn't been asked. Mm-hmm. So you have to get creative and for a while, when I was going from you know twelve to eighteen in that first job as a web developer, really all I was doing is I was collecting Legos. I, I was collect and I it was like little. The reason I love the Lego analogy for really any career but software, it's a really good one, is that when you build say logging in 
for some site, just a feature logging in. That's a Lego set that you've built. And then you, you know, the you get another Lego set in the line where it's like in posting comments, and that's another Lego set. And you can transfer that knowledge. Like I can build a comment system, I can build a logging in system, and I've done those. I've built that Lego set multiple times in my career. Now, I think you transition much more into engineering mindset when you can start to think of, well, what can I do with this individual Lego piece that I used on this logging in Lego set that I built? And how can I use these pieces from this other set that I have? And now you can start to layer in creativity into how you build new software. Mm -hmm. It's how can I munge all of these Lego sets that I've been collecting over the years into something new? And that's kind of what led to my career is all the Lego sets that I ended up collecting over years. I was building a lot of internal stuff. I was building internal tools, internal admin systems for websites. When I was at DigitalOcean, I was on uh, one of the teams that worked on, I was at Dio for just over a year, but I worked on one of the systems that was the internal dashboard of all the servers and all of that, and I was on call. And then I went to uh, Namely, uh, and these are my last two gigs before starting Fire Hydrant, and I was the core services engineering manager. So all the Lego sets that I started kind of building and collecting in my career were much more focused on my peers and their day-to-day life than the software that was being built for the people paying us money. And when you start to have that career trajectory, like internal tools, core services, developer-led, like developer-focused tools, that's kind of what led into this journey of incident management because I was on call. I've been on call for a number of years now. I think I'm still technically on call at Fire Hydrant, but at, at a much <laughs> sure. higher tier of escalation. Gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, in terms of DigitalOcean too, I've used DigitalOcean plenty in my day, of course, and I've used what you've built, which is like even more cool that I've built the, I mean, I've used the dashboard to see all the different droplets I've got out there in the world and what their status is and, you know, if I need to do a backup or clone them or whatever it might be. So that's cool to see that you built that. So this idea of incident management, I would say, has become maybe more of a a known term to me in the last couple of years, I would say, unless before that. I mean, incidents have always been a thing. I've always enjoyed a good postmortem, especially as you see like Jira being down for weeks or whatever it might be. Like, what's a postmortem on something like that? Or this Heroku thing going on right now currently with like security stuff. There's going to be a postmortem on that. But like these are bigger incidents. But this idea of incidents, they can be small. They can be big. We've had incidents here at Changela where, you know, our database would fall over because Postgres, we didn't have a managed Postgres. And we had an issue when we were in Kubernetes and this or that. There's a whole show on our podcast called Chip It that you can listen to, listener, if you want to go deeper on that. But the point is, is that incidents are like, you know, this challenging thing. And a lot of people from the outside see it from this postmortem perspective, like, oh, something really big happened. And how does the world get told about this? But internally, when you're on call for these incidents, it could be like pager duty or, you know, two in the morning, a server falls over. But like, how did you get into this incident space? You know, how did you begin to like think about from an engineering standpoint, the challenges of those who are on call for those incidents and have to manage those incidents and deal with whatever might have happened, whether it's small or large? How did you get into there and start thinking, I can solve some of these problems? Like, I've dealt with this. Now I can actually build something that can actually solve these problems for engineers. Yeah, I think a lot of it actually was a little bit of luck in my career. I happened to pick companies that were kind of pushing 
the needle with software. Even my first and uh, even from my first job, we were kind of doing like new stuff. We were experimenting with new things. And my second job, like we were, I feel pretty confident saying this, like in 2010, we were pushed to production when the test was green. And that, you know, in 2010, like, I don't know, it was just getting started at the DevOps lifecycle. And so I got to work all these companies. One of the uh, things that happens when you push the needle is you probably encounter some pretty hairy incidents. You're going to encounter hairy incidents regardless. But when you are introducing things like Kubernetes, we were running Kubernetes at Namely on 1.2, mm. like really early. I had somehow I was allowed to install a service mesh. We used Istio at Namely on 0.2 and I took down production and then I had to reply to my own page and <laughs> reply to the incident. And at DO, we had databases being dropped every so often and like those were major outages so i just happened to this is the luck component i just happened to be where a lot of incidents were happening but i also maybe i don't like myself a little bit but i love incidents i think they're really fun in a weird way and i would never be an arsonist and cause an incident you know at the sake of for customers because you always want to build trust with them but incidents are kind of a fun moment for me and they always have and i always love jumping into incidents and figuring out what's the fastest way that we can solve this. How can we manage this really well? How, do we need to communicate with customer success? And because of that love of just always wanting to help during an incident, that was a natural point to start Fire Hydrant on the side because I was living that problem. But Fire Hydrant actually, I don't know if you know this, Adam, we didn't start, at, it wasn't actually supposed to be a company mm. initially oh, from the first line of code. I didn't know this. It actually was supposed to be a video series. So I was a teacher at night, part-time, like teaching very basic how to make websites, you know, transitioning from writing tutorials on my websites in 2005 to actually teaching at night in starting in Los Angeles and now New York City at that point. And I realized that there was this gap where these kind of code boot camps or part-time classes end and where production-ready software really begins is a canyon that these newcomers, beginners to software engineering have to cross. So I was actually, I sought out originally to make a video series on how I would approach building an application from scratch. And that application that I chose to build was Fire Hydrant because I was trying to kind of kill two birds with one stone. I was, I wanted to build something I could use in my job, which was an incident response management tool, while also recording a video series that I was actually planning on monetizing. I got about 40 hours into recording, which is why I even have this mic boom, is because I was recording <laughs> that series with all the curse words included. And I, I had a friend eventually say, what you're building, Fire Hydrant, is far more valuable than the videos that you're making and producing. And I kind of took a look and like, yeah, you're 100% right. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for doing whoever I can't. If you ever hear this and you're that person, like, please tell me because I owe you something. And so I stopped. I stopped recording. And turns out when you stop recording something, you go way faster. So started building fire hydrant on the side, burning the midnight oil, getting up super early before going my full time job. And, I've, you know, in a couple of months, I had something that was you know, an incident response tool. And that's when it really kind of like 
started to become a company. Uh-huh. And then we raised our series seed in December of 2018. And that's when it started was, was at that point. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I love that those moments too, like the beginnings are the fun parts. And I think that the, the advice you had gotten from the person you can't remember is key because there's sometimes you're doing things in life and uh, you can profit more from the exhaust you're creating the byproduct, so to speak, than the main thing you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's super interesting that somebody shared that with you and you're like, you know what? You're right. And then you stopped yeah. recording and you moved faster because you're right. Yeah, When you're not recording, you can move faster because, well, you were trying to teach people how to do things versus actually doing the thing. You were doing the thing, but you're probably moving at half the speed because you were more interested in sharing the knowledge than you were actually building the thing. So typing and coding and explaining what you're coding right. at the same time, way slower. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sure even mentally, the gymnastics in your brain you had to do were probably even more challenged. Like you were probably mentally cognitively even more challenged because totally, you know, having to explain what you're doing while doing it is challenging. There are blooper reels too of all of it. Where uh, is that right? Oh yeah. There's, there's full on videos of me finding bugs and cursing and it's like yeah <laughs> are they on the internet or are they behind the scenes there's somewhere they're in an s3 bucket somewhere i have yeah so not public okay not on youtube this isn't like an outtakes fire hydrant inception outtakes so to speak maybe maybe the, the product has evolved so much since those days that you know you don't want to like show this is literally how we built the product right so maybe i can find them at some point yeah well it's more or less to laugh with you kind of thing Talk to me about the the midnight oil aspect and the I would just say the early charge, the early energy you had. Like, was your discovery of you know living this problem day to day in your job and then building a tool to manage it and resolve it easier? Like, how did you feel like when you first started to do this? Talk to me about the energy level you were feeling to make you want to like get up earlier and stay up later. Not just that founder drive, but like. Something in that that moment where you find sort of like, this is the next thing I can do. This is the next big thing I can work on. I think it comes down to a lot of factors. When Fire Hydrant had its first round of funding, brought on two people I deeply trust um, as co-founders. So Dylan Nielsen, who's our head of product, and Daniel Conabini, who's our head of engineering. And when you have, let's call them like startup accountability buddies, that is certainly, that helped a lot. Another thing that was big is I knew the problem like deeply understood the problem as an on-call engineer that was fighting fires for so long, which is why the company is called Fire Hydrant. What do you need to put out a fire? A fire hydrant. And I think that that, that's still what excites me is that this is such a large problem with so much return on investment for companies that I just want to solve it. I want to solve it as much as I can. And I don't think it's ever truly solved. We're always going to have incidents in our systems, but the impact of them, how long they last, and the morale impact and the internal impact of them, there's just so many facets of incidents that are problems that we are setting out to solve. And that's what keeps me going. Mm-hmm. And just the quality of the customers that use our tool today, it just it's just gotten more exciting every day. It helps that you love incidents. I mean, honestly, right? I mean... Oh, yeah. It's semi-sadistic in a way because it's like torture, right? Because for everybody, they're not fun, right? Especially when you're on the chopping block. Like, oh, gosh, I took down production with this DO um, on that tour or whatever. Like, I should be fired. <laughs> no, no, no. I actually solved the problem. Here's how the incident went down. Here's the, the playbook we can run next time. Is that Here's the learning from this challenge we faced. Okay, great. We deployed Istio and it was this challenge, but it was because we weren't planning in this way. And now we have reliability. 
yeah. because of this incident. I think that's kind of the beauty that they come from the learnings, I suppose, of incidents. Because the, the opposite of incidents may not necessarily be opposite, but it's reliability, mm-hmm. right? Because if you have reliability, you probably have less incidents or maybe less severe incidents. Yeah. And at Fire Hydrant, we, we think of reliability. So we think that there's a staircase. And incident response is like ad hoc freak out get there as fast as you can like pour water on the problem and you know pray yeah drive off and into the night incident management i think is where you have a graduation into like service ownership and you have people responding to incidents not at every hour of the day because you're constantly learning more and more about your system and how it behaves and therefore you can get smarter about how you prevent incidents and not and reply to them quickly and mitigate them quickly and then reliability is what I think is really interesting is reliability to me is is a business metric. It's not an engineering metric. It's not a it's the whole company because reliability impacts every corner of the business. So if you think about, let's say you're running a e-commerce site and you have a checkout system and it has a little box for a promo code and it's we're going into Black Friday and marketing is about to send an email to 2 million people with a promo code for your e-commerce site. And you're down (laughs) when this email is about to go out. Reliability at this point is no longer an engineering problem. This is a marketing problem because people are going to click that link in that email, go to a dead page, get a 502 or whatever it is, right? And go, what the heck? So it's a much bigger problem than just engineers replying to incidents, responding to incidents. It's how can we build a tool that impacts literally every corner of the business? Because that's what an incident is. Mm-hmm. It's every department gets impacted, even down to legal. I mean, legal is going to have to go review contracts. Like, what is the SLA for this company over here using our tool? Oh, well, they have a different number, so we got to recalculate that one. In 2018, Slack had $8.2 million in SLA refunds. What? That was a lot of, a lot of departments involved in getting to that number, right? Finance was involved. Legal was involved. Engineering was certainly involved, like figuring out which customers were impacted for how long. So we're moving towards this world where the reality is that reliability is going to be on, in this decade, I'm, I'm, this is my big bet, is liability is going to be a metric that publicly traded companies have to start reporting on. Mm-hmm. Because investors are going to see, well, sure, you gained this many customers, but how reliable were you for them? Because that's a good indicator of how happy they are and if they're willing to stay. And if you have a competitor that's more reliable than you, like, right, it starts to change the equation of, of businesses. I like the fact that it puts the ownership, too, because I, I guess it's one thing to win business. It's a whole different thing to keep the business, right? Gain the contract, sign it off. They're legal, you're legal, everybody's cool. Okay, that SLA works for us, but then actually performing for it and knowing the difference there. So you're saying that reliability being a business metric more than just simply an engineering metric means that at that point, how do you then track it? Would it become like, would you just simply call it reliability? Is there a better name for it? Like what will, in the next decade, what will the term be used when CNBC is talking about it or someone's on Bloomberg talking about you know, some CEOs talking about their reliability index or whatever. Like, what what will the metric be? What will it be called? I, I like uh, reliability index. I think that's that's a good one. And 
I mean, the state of DevOps actually introduced the use of measure availability, but now it's measured as reliability. And there's because they're saying mm-hmm. in, in that report, like more goes into it. I can't say for certain. I just have my big bet, you know, bold H1 publicly traded companies are going to have to report on reliability. If I were to have to guess, though, I'm going to assume that they're going to have to say the number of refunds issued because of reliability SLA violations. I'm going to assume that they're going to have to talk about potentially even like Dora metrics I could see coming into the fold here, which I could see like change rate failure. So, you know, for how many times we deployed in this quarter, how many times did that cause a reliability or availability outage? And that goes into your reliability index. And I think there's a lot there that goes into reliability because another one could be like, how many bug tickets did we have reported? Many times we don't treat bug tickets as an incident, but to that person that hit that bug, it's an incident for them. Mm-hmm. It's a reliability problem for them. So I think we're going to see a lot of changes in the next few years towards this business metric of reliability. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the launch of their Code Insights product, teams can now track what really matters in their code base. Code Insights instantly transforms your code base into a queryable database to create visual dashboards in seconds. And I'm here with Joel Kortler, the product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, the way teams can use Code Insights seems to pretty much be limitless, but a particular problem every engineering team has is tracking versions of languages or packages. How big of a deal is it actually to track versions for teams? Yeah, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. The first is, of course, just compatibility. You don't want things to break when you're testing locally or to break on your CI systems or test systems. You need to have some sort of level of like version unification and minimum version support, and all of that needs to be you know, compatible forward. But the other thing we learned was that for a lot of customers, especially you know engineer organizations that are pretty established, they have older versions of things or even older versions of like SaaS tools they don't use anymore that they haven't fully removed because they're like not sure if it's still in use or they you know lost focus on that. And they're spinning up old virtual machines that they're still paying for. Or they're using you know old SaaS subscriptions they're afraid to cancel because they're not sure if anyone's actually using it. And so getting off of those versions not just like saves you the headaches and the risks and the vulnerabilities of being on old versions, but also literally the money of you know, older systems running more slowly or the build times or, you know, virtual machines and SaaS tools that you're no longer using. Before you had this ability, we talked to teams, there are basically three ways you could do this. You could slack a million people and ask for just like an update point in time. You could have sort of one human and one spreadsheet where like it's somebody's job every Friday or every two weeks to just like search all the code and find all the versions and write it down in a Google sheet. Or there were a couple of companies that I came across with in-house systems that were sort of complicated. You had to know, you know, maybe Kotlin, but you didn't know Kotlin. But if you wanted to use this system, you had to learn Kotlin and you'd have to sort of build the whole world from scratch and run basically a tool like this with a pretty steep learning curve. And now for all three of those, you could replace it with a single line source graph search, which is basically just the name of the thing you're trying to track and the version string in the right format. And then we have templates that'll help you get started if you're not sure what that format is. And then it'll automatically track all the different versions for you, both historically. So even if you start using it today, you can see your historical patterns. And then of course, going forward. 
Very cool. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove of insights just waiting for you living inside your code base right now. Teams are tracking migrations, adoption, deprecations. They're detecting and tracking versions of languages and packages. They're removing or ensuring the removal of security vulnerabilities. They understand their code by team. They can track their code smells and health, and they can visualize configurations and services and so much more with Code Insights. A good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. See how other teams are using this awesome feature. Again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link is in the show notes. interesting too how the developer and software engineer is getting more and more closer to like business goals where before it was sort of like an us and them side of things and now like like when i look at um i have an idea for a podcast that will eventually potentially do that i won't say here but it very much looks at the way engineering departments and essentially the way the software ran companies which most companies these days are really software companies my grocery store, H-E-B, down the road, like here in Texas, we have H-E-B. Everybody loves H-E-B. And if you came to Texas, you've been to Austin, you've been to Houston, Dallas, wherever, you've been to an H-E-B, you know. It's an amazing grocery store. They do great things locally. They have great business practices, but they also have an amazing app and great software that runs their business and they make great decisions. And so I think the value of that company, specifically that company or others, is predicated on their ability to engineer good software. And so in some ways, you can speculate the value of this company based upon the ability for the engineering teams to execute and do well. And so like in this case here, if we look at incidents or reliability or this reliability index, that very much could be a key metric you watch and leverage as a potential investor, whether it's an employee, actual money in the stock market, if it's a publicly traded company, an angel investor or a seed round funder or a series a lead or however you look at you might look at this reliability index number or whatever this might become as a key indicator of why is better not yeah i think you nailed it i mean there's so many surprising companies coming out now and by sorry surprising companies i mean companies that you wouldn't expect to have amazing software i have a roomba and the roomba app is fantastic Mm -hmm. it's internet connected it does a push notification to me when it's done like my vacuum cleaner has no business having amazing software behind it as far as i'm concerned yeah i have a roomba too and it's it's spectacular it's really good and it's weirdly good and you can feel it in the app it's like wow this is they put effort into this app this isn't like a a ui web view in a iphone container like this is a real native application for my vacuum cleaner And that's going to start happening more and more because the expectations of customers is changing rapidly. I mean, I'm in New York City and I shop at Whole Foods and I am just amazed at how easy it is for me to get my groceries now through Whole Foods, through the app. I can say this is what I want. And it's to the point now where if the person on the other end can't find the item or they're out of stock that I get a text message saying we found a substitution for you. Yeah. Do you want to like that is 
but like grocery shopping is changing rapidly. So I think that we tend to have a narrow mind on like where software is, I think, because we're just surrounded by developer tools. Like that's where we kind of live as engineers is in our developer tools and things like that. But the world is just surrounded now by great software and a lot of other software that's trying to be great. The way I'm thinking about it more and more lately, I like I walk by a table at a coffee shop and I'm just like having fun in my head. I'm like, where what software touched that table? I'm like, well, it was probably logistics software that got it here. There's probably an AutoCAD file somewhere in a cloud server that's being hosted, and there's some software involved there. And there's some software for the person on the truck. And it just gets kind of insane when you think how much software touches mundane things that we just walk by now. Mm-hmm. My favorite one lately is trees. I like thinking about how much software is touching a tree. And so far, I've only been able to come up with the amount of water used to water that tree. <laughs> That's all I have. Yeah. Well, I guess you might have the seed package at some point or maybe the tractor involved. Yeah. That at some point harvested something that which led to the possibility of a seed or the clearing of the field, or I guess potentially of not clearing the field in the case of a tree, right? It's not cleared. Yeah, New York City Parks Department ha- probably has something tracking something for, you know, the state of a park. Like when was the last time we, you know, customer complaints about a park that they have to address? And yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah, I get excited at how much opportunity there is to improve reliability just for everyone, not just engineers. I like that aspect of it because I can almost imagine you walking through your life on a day-to-day basis and you're thinking they can use fire hydrant. They can use fire hydrant. They can, I mean, in the case of Roomba, maybe not so much because they're pretty amazing. Or maybe they do use fire hydrant or something like it. Maybe it's an internal tool that eventually they can just let go and use your service because it is so reliable. You know, maybe they have great practices behind the scenes. So when things do catch fire, they put it out quickly or it's unnoticeable or perceived unnoticeable to someone like you because, you know, they've done a great job in their engineering practices. And I think that's really what, what I'm learning more and more about incident management is And it seems like it can almost touch the hierarchy of a business, too, because you mentioned owners, service owners. So that means that the business has enough wisdom to, one, hire more than one person to run the engineering department, and then, two, to actually dedicate someone who's owning it, either the incident. Maybe you can educate me more about the behind the scenes of this and how it permeates. But I'm thinking that as teams become more and more mature, they identify how to handle their incidents. They either have a homegrown system, an ad hoc system. They, like, like you said, you just pour water on it. You run around like a crazy ant or something like that because somebody stomped on your anthill. Or you have, you know, calm, cool, collected, pre-thought out ways to handle things. And because you have a mature team, you've got owners, that owner reports to so-and-so. You know, when this happens, legal needs to be brought in because it's likely an SLA is attached to this kind of incident you know, or this kind of service or whatever it might be. Help me understand the breakdown of incidents and how it doesn't just involve the engineering department, but has maturity and has other teams involved that they all sort of collect and be informed and do their work and then put out the fire for lack of better terms. Yeah. So there's something happening in the industry right now that I think is for the, to the benefit of everyone, not just the people operating software, but the people uh, utilizing software is service ownership. We're seeing a world where you not only build, deploy, manage, you're now directly responsible for the reliability of 
that service operating in production. So I'll, I'll give you an example. At, at Fire Hydrant, we were very um, product focused on our team separation. So we have an incident management team. We have a service catalog team. We have a foundations team, which is like user management, invitation, sign up, things like that. And we have integrations team. And the value of that is that we now have very carefully crafted like, well, if it's an incident management issue, this is the team that responds to it. And that's important because what can happen if you don't create these, let's say, lines in the sand, you can accidentally introduce heroes to your incident management processes. So I used to be, a am not going to call myself a hero. I used to be a first responder, whether or not I was called to the fire or not. I was like, I smell smoke. I'm going to like go see if I can help. And one thing that we introduced into Fire Hydrant to help identify this is like responder stats. Like, do you have per- a person that is just always responding to incidents? Because now you have, if that person, you know, wants to leave your business, go become a baker, someday they're tired of software, like, who's going to respond to incidents anymore? So I think service ownership is super important because you're spreading important knowledge about those applications across a team with known barriers. And it also improves how you respond because maybe maybe a portion of your product isn't as impactful to a certain part of your bottom line. So you can actually create different escalation policies based on product areas. So now we can say, oh, the analytics tool is five minutes behind. Is that worth waking up an engineer at 2 a.m.? No, probably not. Well, maybe it is if you're an observability type company. But for you know some other company, it really depends on what you do. They might say, well, that team doesn't need to wake up at 2 a.m. And you can start to segment really, really nicely down there. And something that we've done in our team, too, is we've this has actually created a nice uh, way that we do our observability. All of our traces, all of our logs include the owning team now. So you can actually go into um, we used Honeycomb. Amazing. But you can go in there and you can actually type in, show me all the traces for this team. Yeah. And like it creates this really, really well threaded, you know, line throughout the people that write the code, people that have to reply to the incidents, all the way down to the same tools to to power all of that. And I think that's what's gonna have to happen. You can't our systems are getting so complex that a single site reliability engineer that has consistently responded to your incidents for the last couple of years is no longer going to be able to cut it because it's impossible to maintain that much complexity in one human brain. You have to mm-hmm. you have to spread it out. So does that make then ops departments, engineering departments more like everyone's an SRE in a way then? Or is it like specific owners become in quotes? I mean, because SRE is in a lot of people's titles. Yeah. Right. And so it seems like this is making it in a world where almost everyone's responsible in a way, but there's a particular person, obviously it's key because you don't want one person owning all the knowledge. Right. So I think that SREs are, if we're using like the the quite literal term from Google is that they're building software to empower reliability. They certainly own a lot of aspects of reliability and maybe some of the core systems that are the platforms that people build on top of, but they should be building tools that enables the other teams to manage their own reliability too, at least in my world. So for example, 
if I need to roll something back really, really fast because of a reliability issue, I should have a tool that someone else has provided to me. And maybe that's an ops team. Maybe it's an SRE team. Maybe you have an internal tools team. But that's kind of where the line in the sand, I think, exists. Mm-hmm. How then does a platform like this enable other parts of the organization to play a role? So if you've got service owners, which is obviously the maturity of the team, you know, and, and you're also not having too many heroes, as you had said, so that you don't have isolated or, you know, compressed knowledge in one person's mind, you have it distributed across the team and there isn't one response from one person that's distributed in that way. How then does like Fire Hydrant enable, you know, legal to get involved or marketing or like how does the rest of the team care or get involved? <laughs> care is probably the first step and then get involved this is the next. Cause I mean like at some point it's like that's just not my problem. Yeah. You know? Well you have to know about it. Sure, I want to send this email as you had said, but like how does like in the in the case you gave before the marketing team who's about to send the email and the site's down, how does that knowledge I guess get to the rest of the organization? Does an incident actually have to occur? Or how does this enable more team members to care about the reliability? Our approach is within incident management, we have communications. So status pages are key. Internal status pages, product-related status pages, external status pages. Like When we say communication, it's really like even just sending an email to someone. Because when you communicate about an incident quickly, you build trust internally with the team. Right. So for us... Every incident that happens through our tool, you automatically get a status page that can be sent to anyone in your company. It doesn't require a license because if there's a fire and you need to, you need to tell people, like tell them. So that's part of our solution. And then the other angle that we take is we have a built-in service catalog with service ownership, with teams and team assignments. So when you do encounter an incident, our belief is that you should be able to very quickly get the right people to that incident as fast as possible. And I'm a big analogies kind of guy and we're called fire hydrant. So imagine you live in Brooklyn, you call 911, you say, there's a fire in my apartment. They're not going to send a fire truck from like the Bronx. They're going to send a fire truck from around you. And the way they know how to do that is because they understand your neighborhood. They understand who owns your neighborhood and the best people suited to get there quickly and know where the fire hydrants are, right? Like there's just so many things that come from service ownership and service catalog that you have to have in place. And we've been building that central pillar of fire hydrant from day one. We've had a service catalog in our product from the first like few lines of code. Mm. So in a lot of ways it takes, you know, when you decide to use a tool like this, in a lot of ways, it helps you organize. It's almost like the exit plan that you see when you walk into a room, usually in commercial buildings, like when you walk into a certain room, like here is the fire exit kind of thing. It's the forethought to inform, right? It's the forethought to say, okay, this is the service owner. This is the service catalog. Here is the services we have. Here's who owns those services. Here's how things happen. So you have to do a lot of, I guess, like preparatory stuff to get the benefits of the software, right? Cause like you can't just plug it in and boom, it just works. You have to sort of tell the software who is what, what is where, why is there, et cetera, et cetera. And that gets more and more complex as the enterprise gets bigger and bigger, I'm sure. And as you use certain features, but the point is, is that to sign up day one, it's not just, okay, receive benefit. It's okay. Get organized, tell the software how you organize and the software informs you 
based upon incidents and all these different things with status pages and mm-hmm. informs the right people at the right place. Like you had said, not calling the Bronx, calling someone actually in Brooklyn, right down the street from you, you know, all that good stuff. Yeah. And the way that we think like you should have a quick, like if you just have a lot of fires going on and you just need something to reply to them quickly. Perfect. Like you don't need to use the service catalog and fire. We certainly recommend that you do, but if you have an acute knee pain and you just need Advil, like certainly we are, great for that that's what our free tier is for and but if you want to start and then once you're on that page and you have the right tool to get there quickly mm-hmm. it's about managing those incidents substantially better mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of where like my example came in of get people from brooklyn not from the bronx which i'm definitely going to start stealing that analogy more and more yeah i like the analogy it it does take some knowledge of new york city five boroughs you know you have to understand that the bronx is different yeah. than brooklyn <laughs> So there is some localized knowledge you could have. For folks that don't know, in New York City, even though they're only, I don't know, four miles apart, that's probably an hour and a half drive. (laughs) So you definitely don't want a fire truck from the Bronx coming to Brooklyn. Lots of traffic. And yeah, it's a short drive, but lots of traffic. It's usually the traffic and whatnot. (laughs) Pedestrians, you know, having the right of way in some cases. So what is it about the state of incident management? Is it early innings? For this, like a management tool that isn't internal, is it um, like what's the when you look across, you know, the most successful companies out there today, like how many of them use an organized tool like FireHydrant? Not so much FireHydrant itself, but something are organized enough to respond to incidents well. Like, is it? I'm thinking more like TAM, like total addressable market. I'm curious about that. Like, is this a big market? What's the future? So we have a number of enterprise clients using fire hydrant in the thousands of upon thousands of engineers in one company using our tool and for one particular company that uses us they had a tool that they built and managed <laughs> internally for i think it was over six years and they and the reason they built that is because we didn't exist yet and so they are certainly on the crossing the chasm. Like they're an early kind of adopter type of company. But if you think about just the scale that a company with thousands of software engineers is operating at, I mean, that's that just kind of tells you how pervasive the problem is that they need to build a tool internally for this. We have a number of companies that have used open source tools that just were very bare bones, you know, called incident response. And then that switched to us. But to the direct question of how big this market is, I mean, every company that operates software is going to have an incident. It's not if, it's when. And they're going to need a tool to start responding to this. I imagine we're going to start to see compliance get in the mix here. I mean, even SOC compliance already asks, what's your disaster recovery plan? And I think that we're going to start to see on questionnaires, like vendor questionnaires, what tool do you use when you have an incident? Because we already see that question for what tool do you use for responding to security incidents. We, as a vendor ourselves, we see that question. I think we're going to start to see that more and more because people are realizing, oh, we have a lot of incidents. And it's only a matter of time. Like, And people are catching up. This is a big market. We have a lot of people that take interest in fire hydrant every single day, new people. And it hasn't slowed down. It has only accelerated. COVID has unfortunately accelerate that because everyone's online even more now. We rely on software more than ever before, especially before COVID. 
this market is just only going to get bigger. It's expanding every single day. Mm-hmm. And the way I think about it is every time someone introduces like a new microservice into production or a new deploy, that's more a more complex system somewhere in the world. And that's happening hundreds of thousands of times a day. And every complex system is going to need a tool like this. When you look at the market then currently, I mean, uh, any business with hundreds or thousands of engineers, if it's when, what's in place currently? Like, what is the, when you look at the market of addressable servicing, I suppose, like, what is it being used? If it's fire hydrant at 2% or 5%, I have no idea where you're at, but like, what are people using today? How are they getting by? If it's when, they're clearly having incidents, things happen. How are these teams managing these things? Is it mostly internal? Is it mostly just ad hoc? Is it nothing at all? Is it maybe a small sliver using fire engine because you're newer to the game and you're still getting market share? What's the, how do you break it down? From when we talk to people, they'll have some tool that tells them about an incident. It's kind of a smoke detector. It's like, I smell smoke. There's an incident. And that's just kind of where the value ends of that. It gets you up, right? Gets you up at 2 a.m. Right. And the handoff from that to incident management is dominantly ad hoc. Like there's a lot of people that when they tell us their stories about how they manage incidents today, like, well, I manually create a Slack channel. I manually create a Jira ticket. I manually notify the customer support team in Slack and doing all the manually figure out I have to reset my password for a status page and go in there, right? And we hear these stories, just a lot of ad hoc manual, very, very little tooling. And that's why they come to us. And because we saw that immediate from 10 minutes of getting to finally be able to start responding to the incident to 10 seconds. Yeah. And it's because of all that like manual ad hoc freak out that we see in the market. We've built a tool from where people know they want to where they are today, which is manual ad hoc freakout a lot of the time to automated respond to an incident and get to be able to res- like start mitigating the incident faster instead of doing the bureaucracy of create a Slack channel, notify everyone, create your ticket, all those things that I just said. Yeah. The main notice of that is scary because as you had said before, back to the hero analogy, if you're like, as you had said, you have service owners inside of firehouses, you're sort of identifying these owner stats, as you mentioned. And so if in an ad hoc scenario, you're not doing that. So you're allowing the heroes to be heroes, right? Which is okay. It's not terrible, but it, that means that there's a bus factor there. If that person leaves and all that manual process and the knowledge of how to do those manual processes leaves with them. And so in a high churn environment, which is engineering specifically. So if it begins in engineering, but then permeates to the rest of the business world, marketing, legal, whomever else, then that knowledge of that, of how to deal with these things, if it's ad hoc, it, that ad hocness also leaves. And someone has to relearn by, how do you learn? By doing, having more incidents, right? So it's kind of scary, honestly, in a lot of ways. You mentioned Honeycomb before, and Christine Yen's been on the show before, and I would call her a friend. And, you know, one thing we talked about recently, specifically to their most recent fundraise, was observability for everyone. And this sort of like for everyone after it seems like maybe teams currently use observability as the smoke signal, potentially, right? Like observability is almost like the ad hoc version of incident management, because like observability is like, did my CPU spike in production? Like it's what's happening in production. Alert me, tell me 
let me go there and ask questions, all that good stuff. How do you see, I guess, since you mentioned the honeycomb, do you use honeycomb? Is that part of fire hydrants tooling? Do you use that behind the scenes? Like that kind of stuff. And then two, how does observability play into like the bigger picture of incident management and then more importantly, reliability? Yeah, I think that observability is the vitals of your system in many ways. It's the heartbeat of how your system is behaving. So we use Honeycomb for that. We want to, And if we feel the heartbeat going faster or customer pain coming into the picture, that's one of the tools that we first go to is, well, let's take a look at where these errors are happening, right? And that's a good signal into how you respond to the incident, right? And think about going to a doctor, right? They always... The need- severity, right? Like if the heartbeat is too fast... You want to raise the signal level of this incident. Like, hey, call in all the shots. Everybody's got to come fast. Well, potentially, and this is the hill that I've been dying on lately, is that CPU at 99% doesn't mean anything. It's nothing. But if CPU is at 99% and people can't check out or load a page or log in or do whatever your system is supposed to be doing, then maybe CPU is a part of that equation. Right, okay. But... You know, if you think about a doctor, if you you don't go to a doctor because your heart rate's fast, you go to a doctor because I'm feeling lightheaded and I can't think, right? And so I think that there's a as a very very SoundCloud has a, a great blog post on this where they say you should be basically alerting on symptoms, right? High CPU, that's a vital, and that's why they always measure all those things whenever you go into a doctor. What do they do? They check your heart rate, they check your blood pressure, right? That's the same thing every single time. And the reason they do that is because they're trying to correlate to the symptom that you've told them and and why you're sitting in that chair in the first place. So I think that's the difference that I see. Mm -hmm. That's just interesting because one thing we talked about internally recently was this idea. So just to frame it a little bit, we have a podcast called Ship It!, that podcast was really born from this once a year, twice a year podcast we did with Gerhard Lazou, who's our, who's been our infrastructure operator and SRE and friend for many years, helping us build out the infrastructure here. And a newer acronym brought into the, into our world has been SLO, which is also, you know, kind of crosses the chasm between observability as well. It's because you want to have an objective for how the service performs and do things as a result of that. So there's certain things that are like near and dear to us. Like if, if our RSS feeds are down, like if they're incorrect, so cash miss or whatever, uh, if they're down or if they're incorrect, then to us, that's a lifeblood, right? Like our business is podcasts. If the information isn't getting out, if Apple, Spotify, and all the other podcast indexes that index our feeds can't get the latest, greatest, or whatever's most new, to us, that's a fire issue. Like we need to fix that ASAP. Mm-hmm. So there's particular things that we're looking at in terms of SLO, and that's something that is shared in in terms of a, uh, a metric between the observability world and fire hydrant. Right? Is this idea to set an objective level for a service and respond accordingly? And that just that's why I was asking about observability. How does it you know go from observability to an incident and incident management? And how are those worlds sort of will your worlds collide? Will you eventually be an observability tool as well. You know, will you marry 
honeycomb or will you merge? Will you, you know, is that how things will work or do you operate with other observability tools like Grafana or, you know, somebody's using a time series database or whatever, a homegrown thing? Like how does Fire Agent play in that world of observability? And then also how does like the idea of SLOs and things like that get into the world? I'm going to start and say we are not going to be an observability tool. Okay. <laughs> uh, that they are good at what they do and we are going to integrate with those tools. And but to your point around SLOs, I think that that's the the a touch point, right? Because where you touch, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I think that an SLO is this really really nice simple tool. We actually just updated we just posted a really amazing update about SLOs on our blog, but I think that SLOs are sometimes in my experience are still suffering from some of the same problems of like reporting on vitals like an slo that says our C- like we want our cpu to be lower than 90% like why why is that a, your objective and then you can use well cuz if it's over 90% our site slows down and customers are unhappy it's like okay that's your slo is the site is too slow it's a good joke, actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm just going to give myself a little chuckle on that one. Your website's responding not quick enough. And you have a service level objective attached to that. And then the indicators that go into that from your tools, like the, the honeycombs of the world or whatever else you're using, you know, give the signal. They give the vitals that can compose of that. And then on our end, it is way easier if your SLOs are detailed to the point of customer pain and like a starting point there because now your incident management gets better. Because now, oh, the SLO says that, I'll just use us as an example, incident management is broken in some way, like a run book step isn't running on our platform. Okay, perfect. That's a great SLO because doesn't I, I actually don't think it should talk too much about tech. I think it should have references to, and here's a dashboard for it, and here's where we got all the everything for it. Because now in incident management world, I know which team to to get on that. I know exactly here's a team I need to assign to this incident. Here's the severity of it. Here is the potential priority of that incident. Here's all the recent deploys for that area of code. Like there's just so many other things that you can stem off of really amazing observability and objectives in your system. So I think that's where I see a really good marrying between the two systems. It's not to say you couldn't use Fire Agent without an SLO. Most people do, frankly. But that's what I see happening in the next few years, too. Let's go back in time a little bit. I think you'd mentioned your seed round was in 2018. But when did you begin to... I take me back to, to the day you mentioned when you were doing the course and accidentally created a company. Like, what year was that? How long before your seed did you work on the software? And what was that initial journey from engineer to potentially future CEO? <laughs> uh, it, I say potentially because we know you're here now, of course. But in that moment, you're like, potentially. Yeah. So I think the first line of code was in September of 2017. So not too much earlier. But yeah, September 2017 is when the first lines of code were written for Fire Hydrant and the commit messages were really beautifully formatted because I was recording and, you know, there was perfectly linked GitHub issues to everything and acceptance criteria because I was trying to be the best engineer I could possibly be because I was recording it. And then I stopped recording and then, you know, punctuation goes to hell in a handbasket and you you have whip 
commits in Maine. And <laughs> that's really when it started. It was in 2017, the first couple of lines of code. What's funny is now, years later, those comments on those commits don't even matter. That's kind of funny, like how much effort we put into like a commit message. Sure, if you have a team and you need to communicate and commit messages are for communication, then sure. Yeah. But early days on software, like just atomic commits, you know, move fast. There is one commit that I still get ragged on by the engineers that we have on our team now. I think it's uh, Bobby318, which is March 18th. I think it's the date, and it's because there's this just massive pull request that gets merged in. And the only comment on the pull request merge was my co-founder who just says, oh, God, approved. <laughs> and, then, and that was years ago now, but sure. it, I still get that one comes up consistently, and there's yeah. like a Slack auto response for it and everything. So I still, I still get haunted by some of those. <laughs> What's up, friends? This episode is brought to you by Rewatch. Rewatch gives product and engineering teams async superpowers, and it helps them move faster with greater clarity. And I love clarity. Imagine this, all of your team's videos all in one place. Record, organize, and share the videos that your team needs to ship great work. Keep everyone in the loop by sharing team meetings from sprint planning to daily standups to project retros. Empower new hires to get up to speed faster with onboarding and training videos that are easy to watch and, of course, rewatch. You can streamline knowledge sharing by creating a library of product demos, tech talks, architecture reviews, and so much more. And we're using Rewatch here at Changelog, and the killer feature for us is every video is automatically transcribed and searchable. And the transcripts are surprisingly very accurate, which makes it so easy for us to search key phrases, terms, and find and play the exact spot in a video. Plus, there's commenting and threaded conversation options on every single video. Now, we have a home for all our videos to enable our growing and distributed team to participate in any conversation asynchronously and on their own time. Check them out. Get started for free with a 14-day trial at rewatch.com. Again, rewatch.com. And by SignalWire. SignalWire offers APIs, SDKs, and edge networks around the world for building the realest real-time video and video communication apps with less than 50 milliseconds of latency. They use WebSockets to deliver 300% lower latency than APIs built on REST making it ideal for apps where every millisecond and responsiveness makes a difference, like apps that need instant natural language understanding, real-time machine vision, or large-scale video and audio conferencing. Here's what makes them different. They use MCU, multi-point control unit that mixes all video and all audio feeds on the server side and then distributes a single unified stream back to every participant. That way, every participant in the apps you ship experience the same video and the same audio. Your apps have none of the awkward audio effects, obvious lag, and jumpy video. It's all smooth, great UX, creating a more lifelike virtual experience without compromising audio or the video quality. Head to SignalWire.com slash video, mention Founders Talk and get an extra 5,000 video minutes. Again, SignalWire.com slash video and mention Founders Talk.
would you go then from, okay, this, this idea makes sense. We've, we've sort of touched on what's happened. Let's go back and let's talk about what could have happened. So how did you go from, okay, this idea makes sense. I'm feeling this pain every day. I'm kind of weird that I like incidents. Okay. Let me embrace this a bit. I can write some software around this. There needs to be more management around this. Maybe even, you know, seeing the future of what enterprises will, will deal with, not the wins, but, uh, or not the ifs, but, but the wins of these incidents happening in, in organizations. And I guess probably just the desire to have more reliable software around you. How did you go from that to the seed round? Like what was the, you know, cause you were an engineer. You, did you have a network? How did you attach to venture capital? How did you leverage your network? What was your first step to even being like, okay, we need money. Let's build. How did that happen? So this is the part where luck is just a huge part of this journey. And I totally embrace that. I actually wasn't looking for VC money. And I'll be the first to tell you that. Fire Hydrant, I was planning on, I was going to run it myself on the side. I had signed up for an LLC using Stripe Atlas. Uh, and I was like fully ready to just like run this as a side bootstrapped Thing. side hustle yeah so, and and that was that was the original game plan was to i just i wanted to try that and then what happened is there's there were a couple other players in our space and during uh the journey of looking into the other players as potential investments at that time in 2018 our first seed investor workbench stumbled on my silly little side project and they reached out. They just happened to be in New York City, down the street from where I was living, could walk there, and was able to raise a seed round with them two months later after meeting them. And so, because they had already done the legwork, they had already researched this wonderful world of reliability and incidents, and they had a thesis on this, this idea already formed. So when I showed them the initial product that was being built in coffee shops and and you know, late at night at home, they said, this aligns perfectly with a thesis that we've built on this. We'd love to do a seed round. And I love and hate that story because you hear all these stories, like people have amazing ideas all the time and they can't raise capital. And then here's me, you know, having it find us. And I think that was just really lucky and really love that mm -hmm. initial seed. Those And they, they remain amazing investors to this day. Mm. Were you scared going in there? Where were you thinking like, oh my gosh, were you thinking? Absolutely terrified. Yeah. Absolutely terrified. Did you wear a suit that was too big? <laughs> I did not wear a suit that was too big. So their, their mantra at Workbench is uh, the intersection between suits and hoodies. So I think I wore okay, a hoodie. Okay, cool. <laughs> so you were nervous. What were you thinking then? Were you thinking like, give me, do your best to like re-remember how you were feeling in the moment. Not just nervous, like in terms of an adjective, but. Specifically, were you thinking like, gosh, do I need this money. I want this money. I, or, you know, I want these people involved because I've researched Workbench and here's the other investments and I could be in this. Like, what were you feeling? I was feeling, I mean, I kind of alluded to it, but I didn't exactly have like a easy childhood. And when it comes to safety nets, just in general, like I don't really have one. So whenever I work, it's it's all for me. I have my apartment and that's where all my stuff is i don't have for people my age like a lot of people have their parents house that they can still you know if really goes badly they have that mm -hmm. and that is just a, that's a dire situation but when you're starting a startup like that that's a reality 
that is a, a real thing that can happen is that it doesn't go anywhere and suddenly you don't have a job and you are scrambling to figure something out. So that was on my mind. It was also on my mind of, oh, I'm a software engineer. I don't know how to, right? Like I don't have any experience running a company. I'm a first-time founder. And so I was kind of looking into well, what kind of support do I get with this investor as well. And luckily they provided the best support I could have asked for. And I I think a little bit on, on my mind was, you know, the all of the what ifs. Like what if, what if, you know, we're, this is a million and a half dollars. That's the most money I'd ever seen in my entire life at that point. And what if we build this tool and people start adopting it and we go out of business? What if that happens, right? And then now I've mm-hmm. not only lost a million and a half dollars, but also these companies in the early days that like put their faith in us also lost money. And so it was just all these like early day what ifs and it just made it really kind of nerve wracking. And, you know, we're, we have amazing customers now. We're well capitalized. We've raised a series B and all of those, those problems have gone away. But in the early days, that was on my mind all the time was that fear of failure. How many of those what ifs, I'm just going to go psychological a little bit with you. <laughs> How many of those what ifs can you recall were positive? Because you said negative what ifs. I did say negative what ifs. Give me, did you have any positives? I'm just curious if you didn't, why do you think that is? Plenty of positives, right? And I, I think that I'm working on that, Adam. You know, I got to okay. be more positive. But um, I think the positive is like we can change how people think and build and deploy software, right? We were, we had all of the components in the earliest days that people are where the puck has been going since we started. Service catalog is the pillar. Incident, amazing incident management after that. Role assignment, task management. Like we've been building all these things because we kind of thought to ourselves, this is what we want as software engineers. Let's build that thing. And it was so cool. I, I just remember being in this room with co-founders and just like thinking about ideas about problems that we had and like solving those. And one of them was, I remember clear as day, Dylan and I were trying to figure out, well, how do we associate like recent deploys to incidents, which is part of our tool now. And he's like, well, what about the deploys that like you didn't think were the incident problem and you didn't think to go look for them? So now, and, and like just ideas like that, like suspect deploys, how can we add that to the product? And all these fun ideas coming into one tool that we have, mm-hmm. thinking about that in the early days was super fun and really invigorating and is, is why we got up every day. Yeah. Well, we are years later. Many years later from the Series A, the scary moment, or the, sorry, the seed round, the scary moment where mm-hmm. we had negative what-ifs, not positive what-ifs. And I think the reason why I asked that question is less to put you on spotlight and say, come on, Robert, why can't you be more positive? But more like part of this show is I want to share the raw story, especially someone like you who has gone from engineer to CEO and the chasm that's between that, those two roles, you know, there's a lot shared, but there's a lot from your engineering role that informs product direction and the ability to CEO, but it's a strange new world. But I also want people to, who listen to this show to hear a story like yours and be like, wow, okay. I, it's okay to be scared in that moment or to be afraid of the what ifs. I'd be worried if you weren't. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? But at the same time, it's like, you know what? It's possible. In a lot of ways, it's representation. Like, can I actually do this? Can I, can I luck my way? And I think you, it was luck. And I guess you could say 
what is the definition of that that version of luck where it's like preparation meets you know timing or something like that i'm i'm paraphrasing it but it's something like that but that's kind of your moments like there's somebody else a venture capitalist who thinks about the future of markets thinks about the future of software comes up with a thesis essentially that matches or mirrors in many ways your thesis which was written in software of a future where enterprises rely upon a certain piece of software to describe to them when they're down or up and how to change accordingly and to communicate and evolve, right? Like that's, it seems like a very possible future. And it's just interesting how you think you lucked it into there, but it's, it's just more like, I guess, serendipity. I don't know. I just asked you the question of the positivity side. Cause I just wonder why people, if there's someone listening to this, going to go into their potential series A in the next few months, ask yourself the positive what ifs too, because what if we can change the way enterprises organize around incidents? What if we can learn from these incidents? What if we can actually enable greater tools for future reliability of software? So those are like three positive what ifs, because that's what you did, right? What if I could go from engineer to CEO and kick butt at it? You know, what if I can hire amazing people to have fun at their job and to help people create reliable software? There's like a few more, you know, positive sides to that, because I wonder if you'd have had a little less concern or fear going into that that seed round meeting had you asked a couple positives i think that it's a great call i mean for folks that listen to this and are about to raise around have raised around or thinking about starting a company taking the dive a few things i've learned are don't measure the world with your own ruler and that way you'll be able to get more excited sometimes if you have that like what if bad things like change it to what if good things one of the ways that we've done that is we look at just how many people are building and operating software and the potential to improve their lives. We say at Fire Hydrant, like, we want to make a dent in the universe. Our vision for the company, our company vision is a world where all software is reliable. That is a monstrous vision. That is huge. Mm-hmm. And having that vision, that giant thing that you are chasing, that's just basically unattainable that's where it gets fun because you don't run out of things to do the effort is the prize and it's for us i I get asked pretty consistently well do you want to be acquired do you want to ipo and i just don't think that's the right level of thinking i want to build a great company that has great people that build sell market and support an amazing product IPOs and acquisitions are a result of that virtuous cycle. So set your sights on a great product with great people and you'll have a great business and you'll have a great outcome for everyone involved. Mm. Those are wise words, Robert. I like that. <laughs> Those are wise words. It's challenging to have that perspective though, because you know, so often I think I mentioned Sid Zabrandage either on this show or in the pre-call recently on the show and obviously GitLab IPO'd. And that was a question he got asked a lot too. It was like, I think maybe because GitLab in many ways stood in the shadows of GitHub and they grew up together and obviously GitHub was acquired. And so the next obvious question for someone like Sid and GitLab and those who are on the board were thinking like, should we get acquired or should we IPO? And obviously they've IPO'd. But so often is it like, okay, you've got a, a a potentially large company here. So the next object is not build a great company because that's already kind of been done. 
in a way, like you still got to do the work, right? It's still many, like it's the, it's still the possibility of a good company, but you know, so too often do we minimize it to just simply can it be acquired by another great company and exit and, and kind of stop doing the thing right in a way, like as a founder, early, early person involved in some ways, it's a new version of the road, but in a lot of ways, it's just the off ramp really it's, it might be a slow off ramp, but in many cases, I mean, you can look back all the stats in most cases, it's an off-ramp to the thing, right? Yeah. So an acquisition's usually an off-ramp. A, a nice payday, you know, maybe it's a good effort, equity acquired, whatever, or realize the liquid, or IPO, which is a whole different challenge. Whole different thing. And, yeah. you know, we're far away from that being a possible, you know, an option for us, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're three and a half years old, and we're the one of the oldest doing this. And that kind of tells you just how early this, you know, new category is is forming. But, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's, if you set your sights on, you're supposed to aim past what you really want. You know, you, you don't throw a ball out of glove. You throw it, you know, past the glove. That way you get the right power. If you aim for an IPO, you aim for an acquisition. I mean, you're just going to come up shorter than you really wanted. So just mm. hire great people that build, sell great market, great product. And then you have a great company. Mm. And I will I will keep banging that drum till forever <laughs> i like that did you come up with that or is that something you heard from somebody is that something that was baked in from behind the scenes like i know you said that was your mission but like was that something that you formed yourself and sort of graduated to the company mantra or the mission or is that something that you heard from somebody else and you're like i agree with that too i'm gonna bang on that drum as well um i can't say that i heard it said that way i think i've heard the ingredients just as my career has progressed but one of the things that we also said in the earliest days, my other co-founders and I, we were in a car traveling around Calgary, long story. And someone, I think it was Dylan, said, I want to build the company that I want to work at. Mm. That's been a big guiding light of how we've formed all of these opinions. And mm. yeah, I don't know. I think if you if you focus on the people in your company and hiring amazing people that you want to work with every single day, that also want to build a great product i still know where you can really go wrong in a lot of ways what are some of the challenges that you particularly face like today today this week like what are some specifics i'm gonna get off this call with you adam and go and maybe it's not even a challenge maybe it's like a triumphant moment maybe it's a a meeting that you're like this is the next big uh deal for us i play a hand in our sales because you know i'm the one of the faces of the company and when I show up, things happen, I don't know, whatever. What's, what's something you're dealing with, like challenging or triumphant? I think right now the largest challenge that I have and we have is there's just so much opportunity, which means there's so much to do. And as a founder, as CEO, this old joke, it's not that funny, but chief everything officer and I think that's actually pretty accurate for a company at our stage in my role. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on the day. My, I'm on the same team and I wear the same jersey. And that's a, another mantra of Firehead. Like we all wear the same jersey. And if you need me to come into a call for sales that helps you with that, perfect. If you need to interview me for something in, in marketing, for a website update, perfect put it on my calendar and it's really just finding but the challenge in there is the context switching like how are you 
exceptional at all of those things one after another mm-hmm. you know you go from a sales meeting to an engineering meeting to a marketing meeting like in the same day that's where it gets challenging and i i'm always looking for ways to continuously improve my context switching at this point mm. i think i asked you before the call how much you prioritize your health because if folks get to see some clips on twitter or youtube they'll see your bike behind you and in a pre-call i said you know hey nice bike behind you do you ride that often you said not in a couple months but then i asked you you know how do you prioritize you know do you prioritize health and stuff like that so kind of two questions for you is uh i think this one's first more or less but you can go into any health aspects that might eke in as well but how do you then remain focused like what do you push back on so in some cases it's like well i focus on my health and i take long walks or i live in Brooklyn, so I I walk the bridge once a day or whatever it might be. I don't know, whatever it might be. So how do you, given that context switch and the need to be strong in all those points consistently, how do you carve out time for you? How do you remain focused? How do you know what to focus on? I think that if you're not focusing on yourself, this goes for any job, not just mine, any, any role at any company. If you're not focusing on yourself, you're not going to be the best at your job because health is a we are i don't know we're people we need to make sure that we're number one with phrase of the company like family friends fire hydrant in that order and if there was one that started with f for yourself it would probably be the first one um but you know alliteration but so i mean jokes aside i try to prioritize i I work out multiple times a week it's a one of the most important things that i've started doing for myself it didn't used to be that way i didn't grow up that way i had to kind of force that habit I do have a bike behind me when it gets just a little bit warmer. I'll go on some bike rides. I love to, I took up skiing in the last few years. So I was working remotely and skiing across the country, which, you know, just that was amazing being able to just get out of the house and go do something for me. And probably the silliest thing that I do lately for myself is I have a Google sheet on my personal Gmail that I, or a personal Google that I call it the activity buffet. So if I find myself with some downtime, like some personal time or I'm bored on a weekend, I can go to this Google sheet and I just have a list of things that I could do. It could be ride a bike, go take some photos, go just go for a walk. Mm-hmm. And I actually have a scoring system that I have to hit five every week. So basically f- forcing myself to go do things that are not work related, that are Robert related, you know, at least five times a week. Yeah, that's uh well, it's good to be specific about that because when you get busy and you're so needed and there is so much opportunity, it's easy just to kind of pull yourself back into work or the, you know, the easy mode, so to speak. You know, hard mode is, is actually disconnecting, distracting from the main thing and sort of taking a break and feeding into some things for you. Well, getting close to the end here, Robert, what's uh, what's the horizon like for you? What's I didn't prep you for this one, so forgive me if if you've got nothing. But if you do, even more amazing. What's something that people don't know much about or nothing at all on your personal horizon, Fire Hydrant's horizon, that you can share or tease here today? Oh, that is that's a good one. On the personal horizon, um, everyone at Fire Hydrant knows this. I just told the whole company this last week. Like, I'm interviewing for my job every day. Every single day, like it's a new job and on the horizon, it's just going to be a new interview every day at 7 a.m. When my alarm goes off, I have to have I need to be better than my previous day. And that's just kind of the way that I've 
been operating for years now in this this role. So on the horizon, a new version of me mm. every single day until the end of time. For Fire Hydrant, we've built tools for incident response. We've built the tools for incident management, built tools for people that care about reliability. You're going to see a lot, even more of that. You're going to see new ways of thinking about old problems that exist in reliability. We're going to continue to push that service ownership is the future of building reliable systems. And you're going to see some pretty badass reliability, but it's just going to continue to get pretty amazing. And I know that because I, I still peer at all the product you know roadmaps and everything. And, and there are a lot of days where I'm like, holy crap, I wish I was still a software engineer full-time at FireHydro because <laughs> that looks fun as hell to build. Uh, so really envious of the engineers mm. at FireHydro because there's some really cool stuff coming. Since you said you're interviewing for your job every day to get better, is there a, a day that you think you might step away into a CTO role instead of CEO role or, or hire a CEO to, to let you get not so much more into product, but like there's a lot of responsibility a CEO has. And I don't want to say more into product because you're probably still in it quite a bit, but that you don't have to fully hold the CEO responsibility, which is, which is a lot. You know, I, I'd be lying if I didn't think about it. I've thought about it. You know, you just think about it from time to time, but I think that it's very natural. And for folks that are thinking about starting companies, like you should be thinking about that. It's a ne- it's a perfectly healthy thing to be thinking about. Is am I the right person for a role? Because mm-hmm. then you start to identify your gaps on like, well, you go work on this, and then you'll actually surprise yourself. Like, oh, I can actually go get better at this thing. But if you look at pretty much every startup that is IPO'd in like let's use tech startups as the example like the executive team is not the team that it started with and that is okay i think we should normalize that i think it's okay to to move on mm-hmm. and i have also told anyone that is, i've ever interviewed for a role at fire hydrant like i don't even think this is my last job and if it's and we want fire hydrant to be a stepping stone on your career ladder for you to move on to something that's even better for you. Mm. And I, I take that away from myself too. Well, I guess the only other question I'll ask you then to be very blunt about it, like, cause I question this for me too. And my company is obviously much smaller than yours in terms of like, we have a range of venture capital. We have probably nowhere near the revenue you have. We have nowhere near the headcount you have. Our software is probably just as amazing. 100%. But, um, that's, uh, the point I'm trying to make is, is, uh, questioning, like, are you the right person for the CEO job? And I think the answer for me now, obviously we have a small company, so CEO is very loosely held, but person in charge may be, you know, better for me than CEO. I always say yes, because I, you know, it was originally my vision. I think I know where I wanted to go. I believe I can drive it there. And until the day I truly feel like I can't, can somebody truly do the job better than me? Will somebody be more passionate than I am? Will they be? Will they think about the future more than I do? Will they sweat the details more than I will? You know, those are the things that really matter when you get down to it. Because you can be an amazing executive, but can you be a, an amazing sweat the details person? Which is such a nuance and such a curated, creative process that often can only be done by a founder or co-founder. 
I have an analogy that I use for this one. My job, my job now, no longer writing software for our tool or much else. My job is to pick the mountain that we are going to climb. All the fire hydro. We're all going to climb that mountain over there. And it's the mountain of software, where a world where all software is reliable. And then I'll know if my job isn't, if I'm not doing my job well, if I can't convince people it's worthwhile to climb that mountain with me and giving the right supplies to everyone in the company that needs it. So, you know, to go distances, if you want to go fast, go, if you want to go far, go together. So my role becomes I need to give my sales team, you know, shelter and I need to give my engineering team water and everyone needs to go with me up this mountain. And if I'm unable to convince people of any of that, then it's it's probably time to to change roles. Mm. And I don't I'm not there. I I see a big freaking mountain in front of me right now and I want to continue to climb it. Yeah. And the people that have joined Fire Hydrant, we actually had everyone together in New York City just last week and we knew it was a good team. We, we you know we just we knew it was a good team based on all the Slack and Zooms that we've been on for the last two years. But we didn't know it was this good. Wow. And how fun and how creative our company has been. And that in-person element just really was so special to see like, wow, this is the team we're climbing this mountain with. And I'm pretty sure we're going to get to the top of this thing with this team behind me. That's good, man. That's, that's good for you and the team to solidify a lot of like, you know, not necessarily question marks, but kind of question marks. Cause there's, there's something about like meeting, hugging, shaking hands, physically being in the same space. Like we are electrical beings, right? Electrical chemical beings. And there's something that happens when you're in the same room. Like there is energy transfer, literal energy transfer. And I don't, that data point is missing from Zoom. There is a portion of it, but there is definitely a missing component in a virtual setting, which is the physical nearness to people. And the chemical reactions just happen. I mean, it's just. We're social beings. We, we need that oxytocin. Like it's, it's a, it's how we succeeded as humans right there was no one human it was a group of humans and that's that's why you know that's how you succeed you must be on cloud nine though man after that kind of hangout because i know i would be oh yeah it was it was surreal it was you're walking around you're like wow this is a lot of people that i've never met in person ever and they're all here to work on this problem as a unit. And I think that was, that was a highlight, Mm -hmm. certainly a highlight, a milestone uh, for me in this role was, was last week for sure. Meeting everyone. Is there anything left unsaid? Anything I didn't ask you, Robert, that you were like, man, I really wish we'd have talked about that. Is there anything in closing that I didn't get out or bring out as part of your story? Ooh, uh, Honestly, we covered a lot. We, we we hit childhood. We're up to today. We talked about teenage years. We, the only thing that's slightly interesting that there's just no way to transition is I'm a huge marching band geek. So for all of my marching band geeks out there, what's up? We're uh we're actually gonna go see a drumline in a couple of weeks, which is kind of marching band, but it's it's I guess this may be a tangent to it. It's DCI. They're uh, they're coming what? to town, and we're gonna go see that. My son is taking music lessons and drums now so that's what i did i did drum corps international yeah 
That's so we're gonna we're going to that. We have similar roots then at least. I did three seasons of that, and my co-founder did uh, seven seasons of Drunk wow. Bar International. So uh, <laughs> that's that's funny that you're going to a Trump Bar International show. <laughs> that's exactly what I did. My camera is is hiding the 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 DCI medals actually. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Okay, so listeners, you're not seeing what I just saw. He's got some medals on the wall, and they're from Drum Corps International. That's that's super cool. From marching band, yes. <laughs> wow. So we love that. I mean, you know, if I'm on YouTube and they or somewhere like pick a Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and, and they feed me, the algorithm feeds me this uh, this video for dopamine's sake on drum corps lines or something like that. I'm watching it for sure. You know, I'm curious what show you're going to go see because the season's only just getting started here in a couple of weeks i don't know um the the place where my my son goes to music lessons just shared the email with us i didn't get all the details they're coming like sometime in june yep and they're like we gotta get tickets now as a togetherness and we're gonna go together so like yes put us down for four tickets that's all i know for now so i i figured dci i'm in i'm i'm, I'm down for it so <laughs> that's great it's always gonna be a good show and i have a two-year-old so he can make a lot of noise there because that's what you do, you know, at those kind of places you get excited. So I'm sure there's, it won't be a, an issue for us with a two-year-old, which can be challenging. I'm, I'm certain. Yeah. Well, you're going to have a blast. It's super fun and seeing the, uh, the athleticism of, uh, a marching band you never thought was possible. So yeah, have, you're going to have a blast here, but yeah, that's a huge part of my life. Some of the best shows we go to or some of the best times at a, at a Friday night football game is, Halftime, right? You're watching that band, you know, the yeah. amazing, you know, <laughs> the dueling bands. Now, I didn't tell you this because I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a marching band fan necessarily, but I was in the marching band when I grew up. Nice. So I was, I played the toms, I played snare, you know, I played quads. So I did that as, as growing up and I loved it. I loved, you know, the cadence. I love all those things. It's, it's cool. I've still got, this is, I still have trumpets. Sitting right next to me. <laughs> nice. Well, Robert, it's been a blast catching up with you on your past, present, and your future. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I love having you guys as a sponsor. I love being able to come to this context here and go deep on your story and the the details behind you know creating reliable software, which I think is is obviously a much needed thing in the world if we're moving towards the entropy of software, which is just more reliance on it in the future. So why not make it more reliable, right? That's what we're doing every day. Well, Robert, thank you so much for your time. It's been awesome. Appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me. That's it. This show's done. Thank you for tuning in. What are you thinking about around incident management, reliable software, and even Robert's love for the drum core line? Let us know in the comments. We want to know. Links are in the show notes. And of course, big thanks to our friends and partners at Fastly. Our pods are fast to download globally because, hey, Fastly is fast globally. Check them out at Fastly.com. And also, Break Master Cylinder, our beats, they bang. They're banging because BMC makes banging beats. And we love them. And I think you do too. Of course, last but not least, thank you to you, you the listener. Yes, you right now listen to this. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention all the way to the very end. I really appreciate everyone around the world who tunes into the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And if for some crazy reason you haven't subscribed yet, founderstalk.fm for all the ways. That's it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. 
I'll see you next week.